If you have your worship guide, I'd invite you to turn it to page 9, or if you're using your Bible, we'll be in Genesis 2. Um, so I'd invite you to turn there on your Bible or your phone, Bible app, or whatever it is that you use. We'll start in verse 18 and read through the end of the chapter. Would you stand for the reading of God's word? The Lord God said, it is not good for a man to be, the Lord God said it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. And he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. Whatever the man called each living creature, that was his name. So the man gave names to all the livestock and the birds in the sky and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord had caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, This, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. Thank you that your word is uh, just hearing it and reading it is actually liberating because we know we can trust it. I know it always brings freedom and joy and healing and not harm. Lord, as we study this passage today, continuing our study from two weeks ago, I pray that you would hear what you have to say to us. Lord, this passage of scripture, as we started talking about last week, has been used for all kinds of things. Some good, but many of which are not good. So, Lord, I pray that as we speak about how you designed men and women to live together in marriage before you. I pray that we would hear exactly what you want us to hear. Not what we want to hear. Not what somebody else wants us to hear. What it is you have to say. Lord God, I pray that as we look at how this passage teaches on marriage, that we would see a picture of Jesus, our husband, our bridegroom, and that we would love him more than ever. Lord, we pray all of these things in his name. Amen. You guys can be seated. All right, well, we have been going through Genesis 1 through 3, these um, crucial chapters in the Bible, foundational, primary, primer uh, chapters in the Bible, and we have been taking it very slow. And the reason is because there is so much here in these first three chapters, and it's easy to miss what's here. Uh, It's easy to miss it 
because some of this has kind of achieved folktale status in our culture. You know, we've got st- the story of Adam and Eve in the garden. Uh, and so sometimes instead of hearing the text, we hear um, some cultural version of the text that maybe we grew up with. So we got to go very slow and try to see and hear exactly what the Bible is saying. One of the things we've been kind of our motto as we've been working through this is what does the Bible actually say? So that's what we're doing. Two weeks ago, we started this little section about the man and the woman. The first man who we call Adam and the woman who eventually is called Eve, but she doesn't have that name yet. And there's there's reason for that we'll get to when we get down to the next chapter. But for now, it's the man, Adam, and the woman. And in this passage, we see two primary perspectives on the man and the woman. First, we see them as simply that, man and woman. This is what we covered two weeks ago. And our big question was, what does this passage, this primary Genesis 1 through 3 text, what does it tell us about how God designed men and women, how they were supposed to relate to each other, what it is about their being? What is this text telling us? That's what we did two weeks ago. If you remember, what we learned is that God created man and woman, all people, in his image. The man and woman in this text both bear God's image equally. And we saw that God created them to live in mutual equality as image bearers. We saw that God also created them to live in mutual dependence with each other. The Apostle Paul, reflecting back on this in 1 Corinthians 11, which we talked about, he wrote, man is not independent of woman, and woman is not independent of man. So we saw this togetherness, this mutuality, this leaning on each other. So we said mutual equality and mutual dependence. They go together. We saw that this... uh This partnership, this equality, this shared dependence, even though that's the way it was in creation, we looked forward, we cheated a little bit, looked forward to the next chapter, and we saw that this mutual equality and dependence were lost at the fall. After Adam's and Eve's sin, God looked at them, and he was explaining the consequences of their sins. And one of the things he said to the woman in Genesis 3.16 is, your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. And so we saw right there, from once sin entered the world, this beautiful togetherness, this beautiful men and women in the world, both bearing God's image as equals and leaning and depending on each other, we saw that that was twisted into men dominating and ruling over women. And we can look at world history and we can see it happen almost everywhere. But then we saw that this twisting of the image, this tilting of the equality into hierarchy, is not forever. We saw that the creator God is also the redeemer God. And that his good creation is being restored and being renewed in Christ Jesus. 
we saw that God is not taking us back to the garden, but taking us to the garden where the garden was supposed to go, where men and women together are brothers and sisters of Jesus, the Son of God. We saw the men and women together. God is making priests in his kingdom. Men and women together are rulers and like kings. Men and women together in his kingdom. We saw that Jesus is switching it back, or maybe better yet, switching it forward farther than we imagined we could ever go. That was two weeks ago. Today, we're looking at this passage again, but this time, not from the perspective of men and women in general. This time, we're looking at this passage from the perspective of uh, husband and wife. What does this passage teach us about marriage? What does this passage have to say about the primary aspects of God's design for marriage? Here in Genesis 1 through 3, this is where God sets the table. For the rest of scripture. So what are these primary foundational truths that we learn about God's design for marriage in this text? That's the question. Now, two disclaimers. Number one, I'm looking around the room and I'm realizing that we the, the, the amount of people in here who are married are less than the amount of people who aren't married. So if you are not married, this sermon it's still for you. It's not for you because we hope that one day you'll get married. That's kind of, maybe you will, maybe you won't. Either way, we hope the best for you, obviously. But this is not like, we're not preaching this for those of you who are pre-married. We're preaching for married people and single people. Because what God has uh, instilled in the foundational design for marriage here in this text Kind of the, 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 the elephant in the room, or maybe the best kept secret, is that it's not just for married people, it's for everyone. And I hope that we'll see that here. So if you're not married, this is also for you, and I think you'll see why. Here, here's the second disclaimer. Wait a second. I had one disclaimer or two disclaimers? I forgot the second. So let's just go with one disclaimer. Okay. Um, oh, here it is. I remember now. Second disclaimer. Um, sometimes, you know, marriage is sort of a hot topic in our culture. Uh, lots of people disagree about marriage. There's fights about marriage in churches and families and politics and society. And I just want to confess to you guys that as your pastor, uh, there is, uh, uh, I feel the pressure when we talk about marriage to, to feel like I have to tell you everything. That I have to preach the greatest sermon on marriage of all time that answers all of our questions, that answers the culture's questions, and that gives you three essential steps to be a better husband and wife. And here's a disclaimer. I, I, I don't know how to do that. What I would like to do, and of course this is a little tongue-in-cheek, but, but please hear me. What I want to do is I want to show you what this text says about marriage here in this passage. And that's not going to answer all of our questions. But I think what it's going to do is it's going to give us a starting point, a a point of reference 
to where then as a church and as a community, we can continue to grow in our knowledge and understanding and our conversations of marriage with this shared foundation. I believe that's God's intent here in this passage. Okay? So two disclaimers. This is for everyone, but not everyone's questions will be answered. All right. Uh, tell you what. Um, let's pray, and then we'll get going. Lord God, we want to thank you uh, for this time. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. Our Lord, our rock, uh, and our redeemer. Amen. Okay, so big question in this text. What can we learn about God's design for marriage that we see here? Here's the first thing. If you're a sermon note taker, this is your number one. And we have three things because this is a sermon. So uh, number one, what can we learn about God's design for marriage from this text? Here it is. God's design for marriage affirms our dignity and worth as image-bearing human beings. God's design for marriage is an affirming design. It's a design that says yes. It affirms our dignity and our worth as human beings who bear God's image. The last chapter, the last verse in this chapter, verse 25 says, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. This might be one of the most beautiful verses in all of scripture concerning relationships. Shame. This first man and their first woman, both there in God's, uh, here in this prototypical marriage, here in this, in, in, a, in, a, in a world without sin, here in the garden, without the influence of evil, according to God's perfect design, man and woman created together, married, naked, without shame. Shame is something that has been talked about more and more over the last several years, and that's a really good thing, because shame is something that has been with us all the way since Genesis 3. Shame is, uh, in some cases, somewhat hard to define, because shame is shadowy, and it hides in strange places in our lives. But each of us, Every single one of us struggles with shame. Shame is a feeling. But it's not just like a feeling like like you ate bad pizza. It's a status. Remember when we start first started using social media and we all felt like we needed to log on and update our status all the time? I am fill in the blank. I am at church. I am happy. I am doing this or that. Shame is a status. It's a feeling, but it's also the, uh, it also defines the moments in which we live, or at least colors or tints them. Shame comes from the negative stories that we hear, that we tell, and that we believe about ourselves and others. Shame is the result of a story. And the story that we tell, a story that we believe, stories that we hear that are negative about ourselves. 
Guilt and shame are alike, but they're a little bit different. And contrasting the two helps us to understand what shame is. We feel guilty when we do something bad, and then we say, or someone else says, there is something wrong with what you did. That's guilt. Shame, however, is different than guilt. Shame is when we do something bad or when we're accused of doing something bad. You don't actually have to do the bad thing to feel shame. And somebody says, they don't say there's something wrong with what you did. They say, there is something wrong with you. Or we say ourselves, there's something wrong with me. Shame is a feeling or a status. It is a dark cloud over us. That is the result of stories that we tell, hear, and believe about ourselves that proclaim that something is wrong with us. That's what shame is. Sometimes these stories are true. You know, if I picked up this silver bowl here and I, and I, and I, and I said, this is mine, I'm stealing it, and I, and I ran out and you guys never saw me again. And then maybe there was a news article that says, Pastor in Southeast Portland steals silver bowl. He's a thief. Well, that news article would be saying something about me, telling a story about who I am uh, and what's wrong with me. I am a thief. And that would be true because I stole the silver bowl. You see it? Sometimes Shane's story is true. But that doesn't negate the fact that the dark cloud still hangs over us. But very, 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 very often, shame's story is not true. Shame tells the stories uh, that tell us that we are worthless. We are vulgar. We are ugly. We are not as good as somebody else. And shame is addictive. Uh, As communities, we tend to... um, Take a hold of shame. So if I start telling myself the shameful story, Charlie, you are ugly, you are vulgar, you are not as good as everybody else. Sooner or later, I come to believe it, and sooner or later, others start to believe it, right? Shame spreads. This is shame. Well, God designed marriage to be a shame-free zone. No shame. In marriage. The man and the woman were together. They were naked. Nothing hidden. Everything exposed. No secrets. No privacy. No dark corners. They were naked and without shame. Can you imagine? Can you imagine being in a relationship where everything is open? And there's no dark cloud. There's no desire to hide. That's what God designed marriage to be. Shame-free zone. Now, is your marriage like that? For single people, are your friends' marriages like that? For kids, do you think your parents' marriage is like that? If your parents are married? No. You want to know a secret? None of our marriages are like that. Every single one of our marriages holds shame. It might be just a little bit, 
but we all carry it. But God designed marriage to be shame-free. This means that when we look at our marriages, as long as there's shame in the room, we know that we are outside of God's perfect plan and design. Now, the awkward thing is that's every single one of us. So raise your hand if you're doing marriage right. Raise your hand if you're doing marriage perfectly, without shame. No hands. That's important. That's important. Almost every gut honest, or if we could say naked, story about us at least produces a little shame. But very often it produces a lot. You know, God created us in his image. God created us beautiful and of infinite worth in his image. God created us with great dignity. And his design for marriage affirms those things. And never, ever harbors shame. So that leads us to ask, uh, how do we get to that? If nobody's marriage is like that, should we just say forget it and just move on shamelessly? You know, shame-free or no shame is when shame doesn't exist, it's been taken away. But shameless, at least in our uh, culture, means that, oh, the shame is there, but I don't care about it, right? So do we just go forward shamelessly, just just embracing the shame? Not if we want to be in God's design. So how do we get to shame-free zone? How do we get to marriage that uh, doesn't harbor uh, the the, the stories about something is wrong with you? How do our marriages look like how God designed relationships between men and women to be with a shared equality and with mutual dependence? How do we get there? Well, we've tried all kinds of things throughout human history. In fact, starting right after the story of the fall, we see humanity start to pick up various plans for how to get there. And many of these plans were ingrained in the structures of our cultures. So in Genesis 3, you know, there was the great fall, the rebellion. That's when God said that this equality thing is going to turn into this domination thing. And then in the next chapter in Genesis 4, in a little bitty story, we're introduced to one of Cain's uh, great-grandsons named Lamech, who was the first guy in history to take more than one wife. Polygamy starts. And then there's a story of how he turns to his wife, both of them, his wives, and threatens them with violence if they disobey him. And as readers, we would go, whoa, that escalated quickly, and we would be right. And then we would read all throughout the Old Testament about marriages that were not equal. Our husband and wife were not dependent. And many of these were from good people. We did a whole series on Abraham, and we saw that in Abraham's life and in his marriage, we saw things like him dominating his wife, him ignoring his wife, him cheating on his wife, him taking a handmaiden surrogacy, so there was rape involved. This is supposed to be the father of God's people. And we see all these things that he does that fall outside of God's design for marriage. And But you know what? The culture around him 
And even many of us who grew up in church being taught that Abraham was, because he was a righteous man, we should try to be like him. These offenses against God's design, we have a hard time seeing them because they become ingrained in the structures of our culture. Now, just like we talked about shamelessness a second ago, in our own culture, we have customs, we have expectations, we have protocols for our marriages that would push us even further outside of God's design of an affirming, mutual, shame-free relationship. So, what can we learn about God's design for marriage here in this text? The first thing is that marriage, according to God's design, affirms our dignity and worth as human beings. It's a shame-free zone. The second one is that God's design for marriage confronts our cultural structures and practices. So we see that God's design for marriage does a work of affirmation. It also does a work of confrontation. It confronts our cultural structures and practices. And this is because since the fall, not only our hearts, but our communities have turned away from God's design and sought to build something new. And God's design for marriage confronts that. Look with me at, look with me at, let me just read this verse 23 through the end and see if you can hear where God's design for marriage becomes confrontational to culture. Verse 23, the man says, he's looking at the woman, he says, now this is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. And Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Did you catch it? Starts off, Adam is looking at the the woman, his new wife, and he says, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, an image of my image. That's that celebration of that equality, right? And then we have this verse. That is why a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. Or maybe some translations, I kind of like how it says in other translations, for this reason. A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. That verse stands out. It stands out when we read it because it's not actually part of the narrated story. It's a parenthetical comment from the narrator. Moses wrote this, and he's writing and telling the story. And then we get to verse, he, he tells about the the creation of the woman. He tells about Adam celebrating bone of bone, flesh of flesh, image of image. And then it's like it's like in a documentary when the narrator's voice comes in over the story you've been watching. And Moses says, this, this, this right here, this flesh of flesh, bone of bone, image of image, this is why. This is the reason, O oh reader, why a man should leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife. And then he goes back to the story. Man and woman were together and they felt no shame. What did Moses mean by this parenthetical comment? Well, if you remember, Moses wrote this passage uh, for the people of Israel as they were coming out of Egypt and before they went into Canaan. 
That's his first audience. But this was also Moses knew that God was working through him to put together scriptures for his people. So he intended this not just to be for those that first generation, but for Israel as they went on and lived in the land. And then it was the Holy Spirit's intention that this would become our scripture as well. So when Moses says, he's telling the story, flesh of flesh, bone of bone, image of image. It's so beautiful. Here it is. Hey, guys, wait. This right here, this is the reason that a man should leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. Moses is making a confrontational statement to his listeners against their culture. We read, starting with Lamech in Genesis 4, throughout the rest of the scriptures, all the way until Moses, story after story after story of men who did not live into God's design for men and women and the way they treated their wives, their sisters, and their female community members. We know that by the time of Abraham, the cultural practice in marriage was that a woman would leave her family of origin and come and join her husband's family. This is because in in the ancient Near East, with Abraham and even continuing on through the people of Israel as they came out of Egypt, we see patriarchal cultures. We see those in the world, lots of places. The way that it works in the ancient areas, we see this in Abraham's story. A family's name, a family's wealth, status in the community, honor and security, everything that a family had was passed down from the father to the sons in every generation. So as the son, when a son would get married, they would go find a wife and then bring them into their father's household. Because if they left and they joined the wife's household, they would be leaving their inheritance, their status, their wealth, their opportunities in life. We see this in the story of Abraham and his son Isaac. They send a servant to go uh, to go to the east and find Rebecca, find Isaac a wife, and then they bring her back and she joins Abraham's family. Why? Because Isaac was the promised heir. He had to come back to Abraham's household. And that was the cultural practice. So when Moses tells the story of a man and a woman together before God, Bone of bone, flesh of flesh, image of image, together, partners, dependent on each other. Not one of them primary over the other. And then he says, this right here, everybody, listen, readers, listen, people who hear me. This is the reason why it should be the man who leaves his father and mother and joins to his wife. It should be flipped. We're doing it wrong. That's what Moses is saying. It's like Moses looks out at the culture around him and then through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he throws out this picture of the way that it should be in order to recorrect the trajectory and the cultural patterns of male hierarchy in marriage. He says, guys, this right here, this is why it should be the other way. Now, Moses throws that out. But nothing changes in the immediate. But we see that verse come up again in Matthew 19, quoted by Jesus. Jesus, 
quotes Moses, but he attributes the quote to the Holy Spirit, which is kind of cool. Because it is the Holy Spirit speaking through Moses. When Jesus quoted it, it was because some Pharisees came up to test Jesus. And they said, hey, Moses said that men can give their wife a certificate of divorce and send them away. Do you believe that? Is it as simple as a man writing, we're divorced, handing it to his wife, and she's gone? And Jesus says, have you not read? For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. The two will become one flesh. And it got real awkward. And Jesus' disciples said, well, if that's how marriage is supposed to work, nobody should get married. Because they recognized what he was saying. Have you not read that the husband should not treat his wife as his subordinate and send her away? That's not how it works. Moses gave you that concession because your hearts were hard. And then we see the verse come up again later from the Apostle Paul. It's in the passage we read earlier, that really uncomfortable passage that that that, um, very often is read, starting with wives, submit to your husbands, leaving out the the opening verse in that passage, which is submit to one another in the Lord. But that uncomfortable passage, Paul quotes it. He says, he says, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And then he says, this is a profound mystery. I am talking about Christ and the church. And then he says to men, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself. It says in verse 28, as he loves his own body. Paul quotes it. For this reason, man should leave his father and mother, be united to his wife. He adds, this is about Christ and the church, by the way. And he adds, love your wife as you love yourself, thinking love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says, as your own body. Now, when I look at my own body, I see a male body. And he's telling the husbands to love your wife as you love your own male bodies. He's saying, stop treating her in what you think she should be because she's female. Don't you remember what Moses wrote? It should be the other way. So Moses here calls men in the context of a fallen world to take on the initiative of lowering themselves of humbling themselves, cause husbands to do the same. Because the way God designed them is supposed to be mutual. You know, if a man in Moses' hearing would have taken this absolutely literally, then, it, you know, it's, the funny thing is it wouldn't have worked out. Moses doesn't mean for us to take this absolutely literally. Because if a man would have said, okay, and renounced his father's household and got married, uh, he would not be able to provide for his family in that culture. And they would have to leave. So I do think there is a literal meaning here. He's calling husbands to humble themselves. But he's this is a prophetic statement. This is about more than literal meanings. Also, Moses isn't just telling the people to do better. He isn't just saying, men, you better, you better do real good in order to achieve God's design for marriage. He's not saying that because every single person is outside of God's design for marriage because we all carry shame because we're all sinners. 
So even though he is calling men to do something to get back to how God designed it, he's not saying that by doing that thing, you will save your marriage and save your wife. Men are not Jesus. And we could do better all day and never achieve what God has designed for us. Moses is also not just talking to the dudes. He's writing for all of Israel which includes us, which includes men and women and single people. When Moses writes this statement that confronts cultures of marriage, confronts Israel's culture, and also would confront ours, Moses is writing not just confrontationally, but prophetically. He's not just talking about the men. In fact, if we read it in the words that Moses chose, he is talking about a man. You see where I'm going with this? What can we learn about God's original design for marriage? Well, number one, God's original design for marriage affirms the human dignity and worth of every single person as image bearers. Number two, God's design for marriage is confrontational to our cultures. Because in our cultures, we try to rebuild something that will replace what we can't do on our own, which is live in God's design. So it affirms people. It confronts the structures and the cultures in which we live. And it does a third thing. And Paul hints at it in his text. God's design for marriage points us directly to Jesus. Moses writes... For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. And when Paul quotes that in Ephesians 5, he also interprets it for us. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. I am talking about Christ and the church. Folks, God designed marriage to be this beautiful, affirming, shame-free zone where men and women together live before him in pairs. But we ourselves, not being able to live up to that because of our rebellion, have tried to rebuild it another way, multiple other ways. But the voice of the Spirit in the Scripture calls us out and says, No! And then as readers, we're cut to the heart and we say, what should, what should we do? What marriage could ever be good enough? What husband is going to save his family? What wife is going to live in this sort of fellowship and mutual equality with her husband? And the Apostle Paul says, have you heard the story of Christ in the church? The Apostle Paul takes this God's original design for marriage, shame-free, confronting our other designs. And then he says, Jesus goes right here. Now everybody look at him. From the beginning, God designed marriage to be a picture of Jesus and his people. Jesus is the man who left his father, his father's right hand. 
his place of wealth, his place of inheritance, his place of privilege, and took on the form of a servant to be united to us and call us his wife. And then when he did that, he stepped into our shame in his birth, life, and death. So that in his resurrection and his ascension, we would join him together. Now, he's the Lord and we're not. So we we use the word equal. We need to keep in mind the word not him. But knowing that we are not equal with him, it is astounding that he calls us his brothers and sisters. That he, the son of God, will look upon us and say, you are being adopted as sons and daughters. And that he would invite us into his father's house, where his father has not just prepared a place for his son Jesus, but where his father has many, many rooms that he has prepared for all of us who would come home with Jesus. Do you see it? We want to look at the Bible's design for marriage and we want to ask, give me the literal steps I need to take to do exactly what I'm supposed to do to do it better so that my marriage and the marriages around me can be saved and returned to God's original design. But that was never God's intention for how we could get to that place. God's intention to bring our marriages into a place of uh, being congruent with God's original design is not through us taking literal steps to do it this way or that way. We just end up in another cultural mess. It's not through us just trying really hard to do better, although we should, but doing better will never save us. And it's not through us only giving instructions to men as if they are the ones that the only ones involved in the marriage. It is through us as broken, shame-filled people clinging to the feet of our bridegroom and letting him lift us up as singles and as married people and remove our shame and call us his wife. That's it. If your marriage carries any hint of shame, you are outside of God's design. But if in your marriage you are clinging to hold on to our husband, who is the only one who can remove our shame, you are within God's design. And from there, from that place, he teaches us, just like in the Christian life, how to follow his law. How to learn his culture. How to follow his steps. Grace first. Obedience following. So, Jesus is God's original design for marriage. He himself. And it's only through our shame-free counter-cultural marriage to him that husbands and wives in the here and now can grow into his perfect image without shame. So I'd invite you to consider your own marriage, the marriages around you, your friends' marriages, your parents' marriages, if they're married, 
And maybe stop asking the question, am I good enough? Because you're not. But he is. And he looks at you and your partner and your community. And he says, I left everything for you. I'll be united to me. Let's pray.